is Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 32, uh, which can be found on page 1037 in the Church Bibles. Uh, We're going to read this in two parts, and we're going to sing a song in the middle of it. So uh, it's going to be Luke 5, 1 to 32, page 1037. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep, And let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. An amazement seized them all, 
And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Andrew is going to come and lead us as we hear God's words. Brilliant. Thank you, Nathan. Good evening, everyone. I'm going to pray as we begin. Father God, we pray as we come to your word now. We pray we would come to it humbly and that your word and spirit would be working together in perfect union to guide us into all truth. Please teach us, Father, what you want us to understand from your word and speak to us tonight, we pray. Amen. Let me start not with a question tonight, but rather a statement. It's my proposal that the word unprecedented is somewhat overused. I seem to hear it all the time these days. It might be an unprecedented political announcement, an unprecedented run for a sports team, an unprecedented virus even, unprecedented weather events, unprecedented ructions in the bond market and mortgage rates. I could go on. But basically, we hear it all too much, the word unprecedented. And I think that's all wrong. It's being used in the wrong way because unprecedented is not really what those things mean. Unprecedented means never before known or seen, quite literally, without precedent. And what I hope to show to you today is the true meaning of the word in what we see in the Lord Jesus. Because what we see accurately recorded by Luke in this passage tonight is quite literally fitting the description of being unprecedented in what he says, in what he does, and in who he is, without comparison, before or since. But before we get on to the passage, let me just first sketch out where I hope we will go today with uh, this sermon. So we arrive in chapter 5 of Luke's account of Jesus' life, with Jesus having started his public ministry, teaching in the synagogues, and teaching with authority, not to mention healing many people too. So his identity is starting to get fleshed out in Luke's account here and taking shape. He has laid out his manifesto as one who is going to bring good news, to preach good news to those who are poor in spirit and recognize their need of a savior. That is what he has set out to do. And towards the end of chapter four, as Johnny said in his introduction too, Jesus says and states very clearly why he has come. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So I hope today that what we read will continue to build on this, to build on why he came and his mission and his manifesto as it develops his credentials further and reveals the kind of ministry which he is going to bring. I hope also and pray that it will enlarge our view of who Jesus is and how his words come with immense authority and power. Back in chapter 1, Luke outlines his purpose for writing the book. 
he is writing these words to a friend called Theophilus to form an orderly account of the events of Jesus' life so that Theophilus might have certainty regarding the things he has been taught. And so it is my hope and prayer that as we study these words tonight, it will too give us greater certainty and confidence in this eyewitness account of Jesus so that we can more closely love and cherish our Savior, believe in his gospel, and have a sure and certain hope in future. So let's dive into the first section. I'm going to look at verses 1 to 12 first, which are on on your sheet on the handout. Uh, And the first section I've called authority over nature. So let's have a look at the first section. And given that Jesus has already started building up quite a reputation, as I already said, doing miracles of healing, it's no surprise that he's gathering a crowd around him. Uh, Plenty of people are, as as we see in chapter 5 at the beginning, pressing in on him uh, to get close. And interestingly, the crowd which which has come in in chapter 5 has not come just on account of his miracles, which one might expect, but because they were pressing in on him to hear the word of God. So there was something about his teaching too, which clearly interested people as well. And this confirms, as I said already, what Jesus came to achieve to preach. And as they press in on Jesus, uh, he decides to give himself some room. So he steps back uh, by the lakeside and gets into a boat and proceeds to sit down and teach the people around him from the boat, just in the same way as he sat down to teach the Jews in the synagogue in chapter 4, verse 20. And upon concluding this teaching episode, Jesus decides to stay in the boat and instructs one of his fishermen, who is nearby, Simon, to head out into deeper water and to cast out their nets for a catch of fish. Now you might think Jesus giving the fishermen instructions is a slightly odd request. After all, these are um, very experienced and long-serving and... um, fishermen who have been doing their job for many, many years. They know what they're doing, and yet Jesus comes along and says, go out into the deeper water and cast your nets for a catch. Okay, Simon pushes back, unsurprisingly. He says, we've been doing this all night long and caught nothing. So you might think, why should we? Why should we do this now? They've been toiling all night, but seemingly, without nothing to lose, Simon accepts, and they let down the nets again. Remember, they've caught nothing all night, toiling away, but yet at Jesus' command, they try again. They let down the nets. And this theme of Jesus' words coming with authority shows itself again. Simon's exact response, verse 5, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And what happens? Well, the nets come up absolutely bursting and brimming and heaving with fish to the point where they call over another boat to help them bring in the catch. So many fish. And when they go back to shore, the boats are sinking under the weight of all these fish. Now, how would anyone anyone react in that situation? You've been toiling for nothing, and then all of a sudden, Jesus just says, try this, and you get this miraculous catch of fish. Well, I think Simon Peter's response is very telling. Because he falls down on his knees in verse 8 and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Interesting. Let's think about this. So Jesus' Jesus's words have come with power and authority, clearly. And he displays supreme authority over the very elements of nature too. That's very clear. His words alone have brought miraculous results. His words are powerful. 
Simon and the fishermen were astonished about what just happened. You can imagine being in their shoes. It's beyond the furthest stretches of their imaginations. Mind-blowing kind of stuff. And Simon's reaction is, as I said, to get down on his knees and acknowledge his sinfulness against Jesus' power and authority. You can imagine standing against someone who is so holy, so powerful, that compared to him, Simon is made so acutely aware of his own sinfulness. And I guess you could say that Simon lacked faith in Jesus to deliver on what he said he would do. There we go. Jesus goes and delivers in the most astounding way. Simon realizes how sinful he is compared to this Jesus and how he can't even bear to be near this man with astonishingly powerful words. So Jesus responds by telling Simon not to be afraid and to invite him and the other fishermen to join him in becoming catchers of men. There in verse 10. That is the command. You won't be catching fish anymore. Jesus actually offers something else, a better job, a bigger job, you could say. Not catching fish, but Jesus' Jesus's offer to Simon is to come with him and be catchers of men, bringing men into the kingdom. That's what he's been offered, released from their role of catching fish. Now, we don't know exactly, obviously, what Jesus says by this right now, but it is clear that he's come to preach this good news of the kingdom, and he wants to invite others to assist him in that journey. And they don't take issue with it either. Simon is remarkable. In verse 11, when they brought their boats to land, Simon and the other fishermen, they left everything there and then, their livelihoods, and followed him. Now, someone who delivers such authority and such power in his words, the response is immediate. They left left everything and follow him. It's remarkable how much power Jesus can bring to bear over nature, over people, with his words. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. So the power over nature and transforming people's lives. Secondly then, I'm going to look at authority over sickness. So in verses 12 to 16, second point, authority over sickness. Jesus further now goes on to cement his authority in the next section, over sickness. This time he's confronted with a man full of leprosy in uh, verses 12 to 16. There in verse 12, a man full of leprosy. And this was rather a a catch-all term at the time, would have been for uh, various types of infectious skin condition, which, according to the Old Testament Jewish law, would have made anyone having such a disease richly unclean. And so they would have been treated as such by uh, devout Jews and pretty much outcasts because no one would have wanted to uh, be near them and become unclean themselves. And so these would have been people on the very edge of society as a result of their skin infection. Some people might have viewed it as a specific punishment for individual sin, uh, but clearly it's more to do with, um, not so much to do with individual sin, but rather the man's heart in general, which is causing this um, uncleanness, which is causing this um, which is causing the sickness uh, and which is coming over him. So clearly it's something to do with a deeper heart issue, uh, which is now presenting itself in uh, this skin disease. And clearly Jesus' reputation has gone before him because upon seeing Jesus, this leprous man, full of leprosy, he again has a similar response to, um, to Simon Peter in the previous 
verses. He falls down on his face. He falls down on his face, flat before Jesus, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Not, please will you make me clean, or if you can make me clean, but you can make me clean. He knows what Jesus is capable of. And Jesus affirms this man's faith, and having touched him says, I will be clean. And this man who had been, remember, full of leprosy, was immediately made clean. So again, Jesus is demonstrating something very, very powerful and significant. He has power and authority over sickness. Again, in his words. His words carry enormous power. Never before or since have the words, be clean, carried so much life-transforming weight. This is very much science-defying, genre-bending, history-breaking kind of power. It can be easy to try and minimize Jesus, to try and domesticate him, to fit with our frame of reference sometimes. But I want us to see that we can't contain Jesus within our narrow lived experience. What we've seen here is already with the power of a nature, the power over sickness and disease, he has such power in his words that we can't minimize him. But we can only enlarge our view of him as we read what he is doing and what he did in the world. So in a repeat of earlier situations, Jesus asks the man to tell no one about what's just happened to him, which maybe seems slightly surprising at first, but it's really fully in line with his manifesto. He's primarily come to preach good news, don't forget. And he doesn't want his teaching to be overshadowed by his healing and to be known purely as a miracle worker, because sometimes the danger would be that people would miss his teaching and just follow him for the actions of his miracles, which somewhat misses the point. It's the teaching that he's come to deliver. And so he's got, um, and so instead of telling anyone, instead what he does is asks the man to go and show himself fully healed to the priest at the synagogue. Because remember, he was ritually unclean before under the Old Testament law. And so he is to go and show himself to the priest and perform the appropriate offerings according to Jewish custom so that he can be ritually clean again. But despite Jesus' best efforts to go under the radar by telling this guy to tell no one, we see in verse 15 that now, even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. He certainly can't avoid drawing attention to himself, such is the nature of what he is doing and saying. And verse 16 is telling, if you look down at that, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Just imagine that. All the crowds wanting to see him do more, do more healing, do more teaching. Sometimes he knows the best thing, Jesus knows, is to actually come away to withdraw from the crowds, to have some solitude so he can pray. With all those people clamoring for his attention, it might have been tempting to want to just do more, more, more and meet the immediate needs in front of him, of which there are clearly very many. And yet Jesus knows the best thing for him was to go to a quiet space and pray to his father. We all know how hard it can be to have a time of prayer when there's 
so much going on around us, when there's noise, busyness, and when people are demanding our attention, it's almost impossible to set aside quiet time to pray. So Jesus knows he needs that time to communicate with his Father, to be in perfect communion with him. And so he prioritizes prayer. He withdraws to pray. And then looking on ahead, we get to the third and final section where we see Jesus goes one step further. So we've already seen this power delivered over, over nature, power over calling people into his ministry, power over sickness, over disease, over ill health. And we go one step further now in the third point, and we see that he has ultimate authority and power over the biggest enemy of them all. He's got authority over sin. Authority over sin. And we're going to cover verses 17 to 32 as we really get to grips with the full extent of Jesus' power and what he's come to do. So in verse 17, we learn that Jesus is teaching again. And Luke specifically records that amongst the crowd, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law. They are listening in to what he's teaching. And this is the first time in Luke's account we've been introduced to these characters called the Pharisees. And they will come to take on a very prominent role as the book goes on. Now these were, you could call them the the representatives of Jewish law. They were the gatekeepers, the law-abiding, rule-keeping teachers and doers of the law. Theologians of their time, those who prized good behavior and law-keeping above everything else correctness would have, been, uh, would have been high on their list and alert to any kind of error as well. And you can imagine, as they were listening in, they would have been acutely aware of trying to pick up on any little error or wrong teaching of what Jesus said. They were trying to catch him out, more, more than likely. And as they listened in, they were keen to see if what he did lined up with Jewish law, as Jesus would have been a, a, a Jewish man. And Luke records in verse 17 that the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. So we've got these Pharisees listening in, and we've got a situation uh, of a paralyzed man coming into their midst. He's paralyzed. His friends bring him on a, on a bed. But because of the crowds we've met so far, Jesus is drawing a big crowd, they can't get their friend to Jesus so that he can be, well, hopefully healed. And so what they do is, the, the friends go another way around. Instead of bringing Jesus through the crowd, they go around and up and over onto the roof of the building where Jesus is and lower him in through the roof so that they can just plonk him right in front of Jesus instead of going through the crowd. So that's exactly what they do. They bring him up, take him round, and bring him in through the roof. Uh, and so as Jesus sees what they do, as he sees this man paralyzed coming down before him, um, What does he do in response? Well, he sees and recognizes their act of faith to start with, their faith which has required them to go to great lengths to do this. He recognizes that determination, that love for their friend. But what he says next is maybe a bit curious. I thought so anyway. Verse 20, man, your sins are forgiven you. To the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven you which for a man who is paralyzed and unable to move clearly raises some questions. Why did Jesus say that? For any observer, the presenting issue is his physical health, surely. But Jesus turns it into a spiritual issue. It's not merely skin deep. 
You see, from the very outset, remember he's come to proclaim liberty, freedom to those who are poor in spirit. And, that it's, and it's at this point that the Pharisees pipe up again. These are the moral gatekeepers of Jewish law, and they are very alert to any transgression. So a suspected case of blasphemy causes uproar with the Pharisees, because this man has said, your sins are forgiven you. They question Jesus. They say, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Good question. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knows that they are questioning him in their hearts. So what he says next is really quite profound. And it gets right to the heart of, of Jesus' identity and their failure to recognize it. Jesus says in verse 23, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who's paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And at that very moment, the man got up, picked up his bed and went home, glorifying God. He knew who was behind this. This could only have come from God. And amazement grips the crowd as yet another amazing miracle has been performed in their very midst. But going back to what Jesus said, this is important. His first response was to forgive the man's sins, remember. Not because his disability was the direct result of his sin, but because there was actually a bigger problem despite the obvious skin-deep physical issues. And so to answer Jesus' question... It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven, but much harder to do. He doesn't just forgive the sin. He goes one step further and heals the man in order to demonstrate that he has authority to forgive sins. So he comes with authority and power to forgive sins, only the thing that God can do. And these healing healing episodes prove it. You see, the Pharisees are so preoccupied with rule-keeping and doing the right thing in everyone's eyes, that they are blind to what God is doing. Jesus, uh, God's son, the son of man, is doing in their very midst. And this this is followed up immediately by verses 27 and 31, with Jesus calling another disciple, Levi, to his number. You see that after this, Jesus went out and saw this tax collector named Levi. So we've just seen his power over sin, which is followed up here with Jesus' Jesus's summary statement in verse 32, right at the end of the passage. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this man, Levi, would have fitted your traditional view of a sinner. Unscrupulous, dishonorable man, because he was a tax collector. Not because tax collectors are sinners per se, but because in those days, in, first century, in the first century, it was in their very nature of their occupation to rip people off, to skim a bit of money off the top of the taxes they collected to furnish their own pockets. And so these would have been been people ripping off their very own people to make a good living for themselves. So they were detested. They were hated. They They were sinners. And yet Jesus' words here come with authority to this man in his tax booth named Levi. Jesus says, him with authority. Jesus calls him to follow him. And in that instant, we see this instantaneous reaction again. Jesus, Levi gets up, leaves the tax booth, and follows Jesus, leaving his livelihood behind 
just as the fisherman did earlier. And he is a man changed after this encounter with Jesus. As opposed to taking from people all his life, all his working life, he goes back by throwing a feast at which Jesus is there, his disciples, and a whole host of his tax collector friends. And you can guess what? The Pharisees don't like it because Jesus is hanging out, this, this teacher, supposedly a good man, is hanging out with scoundrels. And the Pharisees don't like the nature of it. They grumble because they see Jesus eating and drinking with sinners. To which Jesus says that it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He has come to call sinners to repentance. You see, only those who recognize their sinfulness and their need of Dr. Jesus, like Levi, those are the ones who will come to him asking for his help and forgiveness. Those who know they need the help in the first place. Those who know they need forgiveness. The Pharisees in all their pomposity and their self-righteousness thought they were just fine due to their good works. And yet, ironically, they were in the most danger because they don't repent. They think they're okay on their own. And this, I think, goes right at the heart of our modern condition too. Generally, we think we are good people, that we can be right with God through good stuff we do. Now, that couldn't be further from the true nature of Christianity because it's in the moment that we think we're okay that we're actually furthest from repenting and acknowledging our fallen condition and our desperate need for Jesus. So I feel like we've covered a lot today, but I want to try and draw some of these strands together as we, as we wrap up and think about how to bring these different episodes in Jesus' Jesus's ministry together. And I hope we would have seen that the nature of Jesus' ministry through the power over nature, through the healing, through the power over sin is truly unprecedented in the true sense of the word the first person to declare forgiveness for sins and healing from sin and death. Jesus had full authority over the worst enemies, sin and death. And Luke's account of Jesus' astonishing power and authority should also give us confidence today that this is the same Jesus who has secured our salvation and he won't come up lacking for us either. Back in chapter one, I said at the beginning that Luke wanted his dear friend Theophilus to be reminded of these things. And so as we listen in, as we read these verses, we too can be assured of the truth of his words, of Luke's words, Jesus' words, and the power of the gospel to forgive sins and save people eternally. And there was an important detail right at the, beginning, right at the end of our passage that Jesus came for sinners Jesus came for sinners, for those who recognize their fallen state and those who recognize their desperate need of forgiveness and a savior. So I would say as we finish that if that's you, I just encourage you to keep on coming back to Jesus. Don't ever move away from him. Don't ever move on from him. He alone is the one who can save when we recognize our need of him. The Saviour's manifesto is to bring good news, to save from sin and death. And so I hope that's something we can cling to tonight, that Jesus has proved through his words, through his power and authority, that he is the Saviour who brings forgiveness through repentant sinners.
So I hope we can cling to that tonight by clinging to Jesus. And by dwelling on these truths, they would truly enlarge our view of Jesus so that he can be number one in our lives. He is, after all, without precedent. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you so much for Jesus' unique power and authority that he displays so clearly in these verses. I pray, Father God, that we would uh, cling to Jesus. We would have greater confidence in what he has come to do and that we would be people who are prepared to acknowledge our sin, to repent, and to know that Jesus provides full and free forgiveness thanks to his death and resurrection. In his glorious name we pray. Amen.